This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's guidance on our study of his word. Our Father, the psalmist says that it is in the light of your word that we see light. In other words, it is through your divine revelation to us of truth, of reality as you created it, that we come to understand reality as it is and not as we wish it to be. Too often we live in a fantasy world. Too often we think that things are going to be the way that we wish them to be, and we are in opposition to the way that things are, the world that you have created, and the world that it has become due to the entrance of sin. But, Father, you have revealed to us that there is a solution to sin that you have provided, and that only you could provide a solution to sin, and that that solution is not based on anything that we do, It's not based on our inherent goodness because, as Isaiah said in the Old Testament, all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. Our tzedakah is worthless. Only yours has value. And as Abraham learned in Genesis that we have righteousness only because you give it to us on the basis of faith. Now, Father, as we study, continue our study in the life of Christ, we pray that we might be strengthened, encouraged, and as well challenged as we study this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're in Matthew 4. We begin to get into this last week, an introduction, and the episode that we are addressing is the temptation of Christ, the temptation of Jesus all of the, um, or at least the three synoptic gospels all address this immediately following our Lord's baptism by John the Baptist, that he is taken and directed by God through uh, God the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he will go through a period of uh, fasting for 40 days and then followed by these three great temptations. Now, a question that is often raised about Jesus and temptation is, uh, could Jesus sin? Uh, we think of temptation today in terms of a what I would call a post-fall environment. That is, we think of temptation in light of our experience of temptation because we, are, as fallen human beings, all have what the Bible refers to as as a, as a capacity for sin, a sin nature. 
we have a, a predilection to sin. And therefore, we cannot comprehend what it is to be tempted when there is no internal attraction or desire to sin. And yet that's exactly the circumstances that the first man faced, Adam. And the scriptures, Jesus is compared to Adam. Jesus is compared by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 to be the last Adam or the second Adam. He is going through a period of testing that is a counterpoint to Adam's testing. And so it is nevertheless real because Adam did not have a sin nature. God created man perfect without sin. And he was in perfect environment in the Garden of Eden. He had no knowledge of sin. He had no experience of sin. He lived in a perfect environment where there was nothing negative, uh, nothing that was a problem, no, no, no adverse circumstances, and yet he disobeyed God. He yielded to temptation without that internal draw. The counterpart is that Jesus will uh, not only imitate that environment, that situation again, but his environment will be much worse than the environment of Adam, and he will not sin. Now, to think through this, and it's important to think through this concept, and it's not an easy thing to to think through. So for some of you, this is going to turn your brain inside out. It's turned my brain inside out for a number of years as I've worked my way through it and and all of its complex uh, explanations and ramifications. So I want to hit it at a more of an introductory surface level this morning. But there are two things we need to understand in our background before we get to directly addressing the question, could Jesus sin? The first is we have to understand the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and what's going on in the dynamic of this, uh, the testing, the temptation in uh, Matthew 4. It's to demonstrate, as I've indicated in the title slide, to demonstrate the character of the messianic Servant. So the first thing we understand is from our study of Hebrew scriptures, there is the prophecy that the Messiah will not only be human, but that he will also be divine. Um, we've studied passages such as Micah 5.2 that predict that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. And he's identified in Matthew 5 as the one whose goings forth are from eternity. That indicates that he's eternal. An indication that he's born, which indicates humanity, and that he is eternal. In Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter uh, 9 and Isaiah chapter uh, 7, we're told uh, aspects of the Messiah that he is going to be born, but he is also going to be called the father of eternity. He is given the attributes and the appellations of deity. So, again, we see these numerous passages within the Hebrew Scriptures that predicted a Messiah that would be both God and man. New Testament, this is clear and indicated as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And after the New Testament is has been written, uh, which was completed by approximately 95, A.D. 95, we have the development of uh, the church's, the Christianity's understanding of what that meant. Uh, there were passages that clearly taught about the deity of, of Jesus and the deity of Messiah. 
There were passages that clearly taught about the humanity of Jesus and the humanity of Messiah. But there were, there's, the, the Bible's not a theological textbook, so God leaves things like that for us to, as humans, to force us to meditate, study, reflect, and dig into the scriptures to try to articulate these, what appear to be maybe contradictory statements, and to put them together. They're not contradictions. The term the early church came up with to describe this was the hypostatic union. From the Greek word hypostasis, which means the essence or the actual nature of something. And in their understanding of, of the unity of deity and humanity in the one person of Jesus, they said that this term that they're using describes the union of two natures, undiminished deity and true humanity united together in the one person of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to us to understand because Jesus is fully God on the one hand. He's true humanity on the other, but he's one person. He's not a schizo. Sometimes you hear people say, well, Jesus did this from his humanity or he did this from his deity. Well, if he's doing that, it's like it's he's two persons, and that's that's an awkward or inadequate way of expressing it. The one person does it. Jesus changed the water into wine. That demonstrated that he was the creator. Uh, water, uh, wine, uh, excuse me, wine is converted from water all the time. It just takes a long time. Jesus did it instantly, which indicates he had that ability to transform the molecular structure of the water instantaneously and to take out the time process and convert it into the highest quality wine that's ever been produced in the history of mankind. So that he is both of these elements. And how they work together is difficult for our finite minds to comprehend, but the scriptures are very clear that, that this unity is inseparable. He will always be the God-man on into the future. Once in his deity, he entered into human history. And just emphasizing from this important teaching that Jesus is one person. So the one person Jesus is who's being tested in the wilderness. The second doctrine that, again, gets pretty complex, but I'm trying to simplify it for you, is what's called the kenosis, taken from a Greek verb, kenao, used in Philippians chapter 2 to describe what happens when the eternal God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, entered into human history, and it says he took on humanity. He, he doesn't drop his deity. He doesn't leave out his deity. He doesn't diminish his deity in terms of its essence, but he adds true humanity to that. And so the definition is that during the period of the incarnation, Jesus Christ willingly restricted the use of his divine attributes so as not to use them to solve problems related to his humanity. Now, I've changed that definition a little bit from one some of you are used to. Uh, many writers insert the word uh, the independent use, that Jesus willingly respect, restricted the independent use of his divine attributes. The problem is, if you insert the word independent, that's an implication that somehow in his deity in eternity past, he operated independently of the Father. He never operates independently of the Father. So I, I find that to be a sort of a redundant idea that's put in here. The emphasis really isn't on, on does Jesus... Uh, uh, operate independently, but is he willing to restrict his his use of his deity in order to accomplish the plan 
that the Father has for him. And so he, this is what happens is Jesus, though he is fully God, he's not relying upon his deity to solve the problems in his humanity because as Messiah, he is supposed to be fully human and the ideal king, the, the setting the standard of perfection as a man, not as God. God can easily do these things but he must do them as a man, uh, not as uh, not from his deity. So this leads us then to the question: Could Jesus could Jesus sin? This is a very complex doctrine, and the idea in this is uh, I'm going to give you six points to understand this particular uh, this particular issue. Uh, but before that, we need to understand something about this concept of testing. We have a verse in Hebrews written. Um, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but it was written to Jewish believers, mostly of, the, uh, of a priestly background, in the first century, probably around uh, early 60s uh, A.D. Remember at that time, that a, a large percentage, a, a percentage of Jews, not not a majority percentage, but a large percentage, probably uh, it's been estimated between 15 and 20 percent of Jews in uh, in Israel at that time had uh, come to understand Jesus as Messiah. That historical fact is often overlooked, and so, but they were under uh, opposition, and it increased during the 60s, a time of rebellion in the Jewish wars, a time of nationalism. Uh, there became more and more opposition to those who had identified themselves with Jesus. And so this is why the writer of Hebrews is writing this, and he reminds them as they're going through this pressure, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. The high priest, of course, is referring to Jesus. But he was in all points tempted or tested as we are, yet without sin. And we'll see this a little more in our study, but the word that the concept of testing that we see is has two meanings in scripture. Uh, one is objective testing to evaluate something or to expose or reveal what its characteristics are. Another use of the word testing is the one we often think of when we hear translated tempted, and that is an enticement to sin. Now what we see here in the presentation of Jesus' temptation that this isn't an enticement for Jesus to sin, although the, Satan is certainly doing that. In God's plan, it's not so Jesus will will see if Jesus sins or doesn't sin. It is to demonstrate that in his humanity, he will rely exclusively upon God's power and God's word to sustain himself in the midst of the testing so he will not sin. That's what it demonstrates. It's demonstrating that he won't sin. It's not there to demonstrate or to find out if he would sin. It's there to demonstrate that he will uh, and uh, completely, totally depend upon the Father and upon the Word and, therefore, and the Holy Spirit, and therefore he does not sin and will not sin. It is an example for us, but what's interesting is it shows that he is qualified to be the Messiah. Now, as we look at this concept of testing, uh, that helps us understand uh, these, these points I'm going to make. Just to answer the question, could Jesus sin? First of all, though Jesus is restricting the use of his divine attributes, his essential divine nature 
does not change in hypostatic union. He's still fully God, even though he's restricting those attributes, his omniscience. He could easily have done the things that he's asked to do out of his deity, but he doesn't. And because he's restricting those uses doesn't mean that his nature has changed. Second point, as undiminished deity, as fully God, nevertheless, the one person of Jesus in union with humanity, the one person of Jesus could not sin. Third point, it's incorrect to assume that the purpose of the temptation was to see if Jesus would sin. I think a lot of people approach this, is Jesus going to sin? Is he going to yield? That's not the purpose. If I want, I want to use an analogy from metallurgy. If you are going to uh, test the quality of, a, of gold bullion, when you test it, you're not doing to see if it's changed or if it could be something else. You know what it is. You're just exposing and, and verifying the quality of what is there. You're not seeing if somehow it changed to copper or silver. So the temptation wasn't to see if Jesus would sin, but to demonstrate that as Messiah, as the second Adam, that he would not sin, and that as John the Baptist had announced, he was indeed the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Fourth thing we learn is he demonstrates that as man, in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures, he will not sin. That's a great example for us, that we can follow him in that, that as long as we are walking by the Spirit in dependence upon God's Word, we can avoid any kind of temptation and not sin. So that raises the question under point five is how legitimate is the test? The test is legitimate because it wasn't to show to see if he would sin, but to prove or demonstrate his sinlessness. It's like an experiment. A lot of people think, uh, when they think of the word experiment, they think of it in one of its senses where it means to test or see what will happen under certain circumstances and to test or evaluate a hypothesis or a theory. But in any definition such as that in the OED or a number of examples I saw online, uh, experiment is defined as a scientific procedure undertaken to demonstrate a known fact to demonstrate a known fact. so And that's what happened if you think back to your first year of chemistry, that everyone knew what would take place in those experiments you did in the lab. They were uh, well-orchestrated experiments, but what you everybody did was, was those same experiments, and they demonstrated the same thing every time, every year that the students did it. Uh, an experiment is also also has a purpose to demonstrate a known truth, and that's what's going on with the testing of Jesus. He's demonstrating who he is, which shows that he is indeed and does fulfill uh, the requirements to be Messiah. So it demonstrates a known fact that he was sinless, and that and it also shows. This is the sixth point: as a man, he experienced in his humanity the intensity of physical and emotional uh, distress. He's gone through 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. He is in physical distress. 
He is in, uh, he, he now hungers greatly. As I pointed out last time, it's, it's no great feat for people to go 40 days without food. You may think it is. You may have trouble going 40 minutes without food or 40 hours without food. But if you go a couple of days on a fast, what you'll discover is that you're, uh, and of course drinking water along the way, what you'll discover is your appetite eventually diminishes and for the majority of the time, up to about the 38th to 39th day, you will not have an appetite. And then all of a sudden, because your body can't go much longer without food, uh, that hunger comes back like a, like a ravenous beast. And this is where Jesus is in a time of heightened physical need and, and distress. And so unlike the first Adam, who is fully satiated in everything in life, in the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden, Jesus is in the horrible environment of the wilderness, and he is under physical and emotional distress in his humanity. And so uh, he's experiencing all of the limitations in negative circumstances uh, of humanity, and he's learning the limitations of creaturely capabilities. So he is... Uh, tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. He is sinless. He does this because of his dependence upon the word, as I pointed out last time, Psalm 119, 11. Uh, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The same idea that's used in Ephesians 6, that we uh, defend ourselves in times of testing with the word of God, that is the spoken word of God, the rhema. So let's go through the passage. Pretty simple. Matthew 4, 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. It's an interesting way it's phrased in each of the different Gospels. I pointed this out last time, that the passive verb was led up. Is uh, it, it, the, the, the subject is by the Spirit. It's a classic Greek construction here indicating that the Spirit is actively leading uh, Christ into the wilderness. Other writers stated a little differently. All up together, it stresses this is God's direction for Jesus. We must understand that God in his sovereignty allows, permits, and sometimes actively takes us through times of adversity. It teaches us things. It, it knocks us on our rear end. It teaches us humility to depend upon him. It reminds us that, that what he desires of us is that radical dependence upon him. And so God uh, allows us to go through these times of stress and adversity and difficulty to teach us how to be dependent upon him. When we go through them, it's very difficult sometimes, especially some of the more intense forms of suffering. Uh, it's very difficult for us to realize how this is good. Well, it's not good, but we have the promise of God in Romans 8.28 that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's part of his plan. Therefore, we can be thankful and we can rejoice. So Jesus is directed by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness. This is a map showing the area of the um, the de- desert just to the west and north of Jericho. Here we have uh, modern Jericho located right here. 
not too far west of the of the uh, Jordan River. Uh, this little circle indicates the area approximately where uh, John the Baptist was baptizing, and it's immediately after that, as Mark says, and and as uh, Matthew says, that Jesus uh, was then uh, immediately following his baptism, uh, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, which is this area. Now, at that time, uh, it was a rather um, uh, uh, Jericho was very small. This is a rugged wilderness area. Today, it's something of a tourist location. One of my favorite signs when I uh, I took a picture of last year when I was in uh, Jericho is this one. There's a new commercial development there right by the site of the archaeological dig, and they have a great sign that has personal meaning for me, the Mount of Temptation restaurant, coffee shop, and ice cream bar. Lots of magnum bars there. Uh, which I enjoyed as many as I could. So Jesus is then led into this wilderness area. Here is a photo of the Mount of Temptation just to the west of um, of Jericho. You can't see it in the picture, but just in this area of the ridge uh, of, of this mountain, there is a monastery that dates back to about the fourth century or so, and this is called the Monastery of Temptation. This is an extremely attractive area to go to, and as you can see, it had everything that the Garden of Eden did not. <laughs> had nothing. This is an extremely barren uh, desert wasteland, and so I thought I would give you just a couple of photos so you could uh, appreciate uh, where Jesus was for those 40 days and 40 nights. This is the area here indicating a couple of things. This is modern Jericho. Uh, this is the area of the Tell where ancient Jericho was. And then this area here is where the Monastery of Temptation is located. And then Jesus headed uh, into these mountains, into this region of western, or excuse me, eastern Samaria, where he was uh, uh, tested by the devil. We see in the Greek that the word to be led is the word anago, to be taken up or to raise, to lead or to convey from one location to another. In Mark, it's a different verb. It says the, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. That's the King James translation. The Greek verb is ekbalo, the word that Jesus uses when he casts out a demon. It has the idea of some, uh, some intensity, and it's translated uh, to drive out, to cast out or to impel. So I like the New American Standard translation, the Spirit impelled Jesus into the wilderness. God directs us into some testing to evaluate our spiritual growth. We're told in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus, uh, having been filled uh, with the Holy Spirit, uh, re, are filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The problem with this translation is that uh, it's too close to Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18 says that we're to be filled by the Spirit. It uses a different phraseology. It uses a different verb. In fact, this isn't a verb at all. It's translated Jesus being filled as if it's a participle, and it's not a participle or verb at all. Uh, it's not like plerao in Ephesians uh, 5.18 it is this word in the lower left, play race. It's an adjective. That means it's, it's a noun. It's a noun and it identifies something as being full of something else. It's followed by a genitive phrase, not an 
dative phrase. It's not filled by the Spirit. It's full of the Spirit. The second phrase, by the Spirit, is one we're familiar with, emphasizing uh, his being led by the instrumentality of the Spirit. Now, this phrase, being full of the Spirit, is an interesting phrase. We should ask, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that it's like a cup being full of something? It's an idiom for uh, describing the characteristics or the quality of some someone or something. We see it in a negative sense in Acts 13.10, describing um, one who is full of all deceit and fraud. That just simply saying that, that his character is deceitful and fraudulent. It is uh, an idiom in that sense. It's not saying that all the time he's deceitful and fraudulent, but this is his dominant characteristic. In Acts 6, 5 and 6, 8, Stephen, one of the those chosen in Acts 6, is called a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, simply saying that his life is characterized by faith and dependence on the Holy Spirit. In Acts 6, 8, Stephen is described as being full of grace and power. Again, his life was, was characterized by grace and power. The, this phrase, even though the way it's translated in passages, sounds similar to the Ephesians 5.18 command to believers to be filled by means of the Spirit. It's a different word. It's not a verb. It's a noun, uh, a different word, and it's a different prepositional phrase. Uh, they're not the same. This is a distinct type of, 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 of leadership uh, here by uh, it's characterizing Jesus, that Jesus is is full of the Spirit. He's characterized by a dependence upon God, the Holy Spirit. Now, this word, to be tempted, is the word perazzo. Uh, Perazzo indicates that he is, first of all, the idea of testing the genuineness or the sincerity of something. It's, It's proving or exposing the quality of something, the characteristics of something that's there not tempting in order to, the second meaning, to entice someone to evil. Even though that is certainly the the uh, motivation of Satan, it is not why God is leading Jesus to be tempted. He is leading Jesus to be tested, to show, to reveal to everyone the quality of his character and that Matthew is using it and the other Gospels use it to show that he is qualified to be the servant Messiah. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, in Scripture, we see that that fasting is often uh, indicated by for, uh, a period of 40 days. Uh, both Moses in Deuteronomy 9.9 and Elijah, the prophet, in 1 Kings 19.8, fasted for 40 days. Thus, the number has significance for Israel. In the Old Testament, the number 40 is often associated with sin in some sense. In Genesis 7, 4 uh, and 12, in Numbers 14, 33, 32, 13, in Deuteronomy 9, 25 and 25, 3, in Psalm 95, 10 and in Jonah 3, verse 4. In each context, it has something to do with a sinful situation or cleansing from sin, or purification, something like that. Sin is always in in the particular uh, context. And as it will be here, at the end of the 40 days, Jesus will be tested to see if 
to show that he does not sin and that he will not sin. So he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. At the time, in Judaism, there were two types of fasts. One was a complete uh, fast, which was uh, complete refusal of food and water, and this usually did not last more than a day because we can't go very long without water. Then there would be a partial fast, and in a partial fast, you would uh, possibly eat just morsels of bread or something. Occasionally, uh, you would drink water. Sometimes it just might be water only and no food, but it was uh, not the complete fast of no water and no food. Jesus, no one can go more than three or four days without water. So Jesus, it's a partial fast. Water he's drinking, but he's not eating any any food. Now, one of the purposes for fasting is to focus our attention upon a particular task or issue uh, for a particular reason. And it indicated humility. Psalm 35, 13 The psalmist says, but as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting. So fasting was a sign of humility and dependence upon God to sustain us in the midst of the, of the fast. So we come to the uh, first test and the tempter, that is the devil says, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, the if clause, as I've pointed out before in Greek, there are three different ways to express this kind of condition. You could be saying if, and we're assuming the this to be true. You could say if, we're assuming this is not true. Or you could say if, and we're not sure what the circumstances are. It could be one way, could be another. This is what's called a first-class condition. The assumption is that he is the Son of God. Of course, both Satan and Jesus knew he was the Son of God. So you might translate this, since you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. What Satan is asking Jesus to do is to solve the problem in his humanity of hunger, this ravenous hunger, this demand for food, to solve that pressure by using his humanity to perform a miracle. What Jesus is going to demonstrate is that our problems are not to be solved by miracles. Our problems are to be solved by depending upon the word of God, that God will sustain us uh, through his word. Furthermore, when Satan says, uses the term son, this takes us back to the announcement at Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3.17, When God the Father spoke from the heavens and the whole crowd, the whole multitude heard him, and God the Father announced, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This Son terminology takes us back into the Hebrew Scriptures in Psalm 2, where uh, God announces that the Messiah is his Son, the Anointed One is his Son in Psalm chapter 2. So, again, Satan recognizes who this is, but he is seeking to distract him and to derail him so that he will solve his human problems by dependence upon his deity. But in order to perform his mission as Savior and Messiah, Jesus had to live his spiritual life like a human being on the basis of the same resources that God has given us, 
on the basis of the Spirit of God and the Word of God, Jesus is going to handle the problem. And so he appeals to the Word of God. Interesting, in each of these three temptations, Jesus answers the temptation with a quote from the Torah, from the book of Deuteronomy, and he he relies exclusively upon uh, Old Testament scripture in order to refute and to parry the attack from Satan. So Jesus, quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3, says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, the context of that in Matthew 8.3 was a reminder by Moses to the Israelites that when they were in the desert, God supplied their need every day through manna. Manna, the term manna basically means, what is it? This was a type of bread that appeared like dew every morning to feed and sustain the Israelites uh, as they went through uh, went through the wilderness. And so Moses reminded them of this in Deuteronomy 8.3, that God humbled them, allowed you to hunger, that's the test part, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is not saying that there's that the need is wrong or providing or eating bread is wrong. When he says man shall not live by bread alone, he's saying there's more to life than just the material. There's more to life than sustaining the immediate gratification of our needs when we're involved in testing. What's more important is to do it the right way by depending radically upon God to provide for us and sustain us in the midst of testing. This is the same thing the Apostle Paul learned when he was going through his testing uh, that is identified as a thorn in the flesh that was a messenger from Satan, some sort of demonic oppression. And uh, Paul concluded that by saying that, that this was God teaching him that my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, Paul concluded, I will boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest in me. Therefore, this should be our attitude. I take pleasure in infirmities. How many times do we think about that when we go through adversity, when we're going through health tests, when we're going through financial crises, when we're going through the time of a loss of a job, when we're going through crises that occur through weather, when we're just dealing with the world around us and all of its evil and all of its horror, uh, we are to take pleasure in that. That's similar to what James says in James 1-2, that we are to count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because we know something, that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And the word there for testing is the same word we find in these passages, and in the context it shows that it is to reveal or expose the quality of our spiritual life. And so here Paul rejoices, and that is what we are to take from this, is that in testing we learn to trust God, and so therefore we rejoice because we're able to give evidence of his grace and power in our lives. Now in the second test, the devil then took Jesus up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now the holy city is a reference to Jerusalem, And the center of Jerusalem is the temple. 
Now, the indication of both temple and holy city tells us once again this has a messianic context. It's, it's the holy city. Jesus, as the Messiah, is to come to Jerusalem. And the temptation that Satan offers in verse 6 is, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Now, again, Satan recognizes that he is the Son of God and that this was a title for the Messiah. And Jesus and, and, and Satan is also appealing to a rabbinic tradition here that there would be a particular kind of sign that uh, would indicate the Messiah. Not uh, It's not in the Old Testament Scripture. It had become a rabbinic tradition. This is perhaps what Jesus is, or what is being described in John 6.30, when the Pharisees said to Jesus, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? And according to rabbinic tradition, uh, there was the view that um, when the Messiah came, he would stand upon the roof of the temple, and this would then indicate that he was the, the Messiah. Um, Jesus is not going to yield to this uh, testing because he is going to demonstrate that he is the Messiah uh, the way God has planned for him to and not through such a sign of, of uh, uh, where he would be on the place of the pinnacle of the temple. Now, it's another thing that's going on here that's interesting is the quote that, that um, um, Satan is using comes from Psalm 91. Now, Psalm 91 has no indication in it of the circumstances around or surrounding the writing of the psalm. It was not necessarily written during the time of the wilderness wanderings. Uh, it was not written at the time of the Babylonian captivity. We don't know when it was written, but it is extolling the value of the one who is dependent upon God to solve all of his needs. In the midst of this, it is talking about God, how God takes care of and provides for the one who trusts in him. Satan comes along and he quotes from two verses that I have underlined on the screen from part of verse 11 and from verse 12, that God will indeed sustain us. But the implication is that that Jesus can do something foolish and force God's hand to sustain him. It's a wrong application of the passage. So Satan learned from the first attempt where Jesus, where he uh, comes to Jesus on the basis of a principle, if you're the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. And Jesus responded with scripture, and Satan thinks, oh, so you're going to use the scripture? I can too. I'm going to quote from scripture. But here we see Satan doing some scripture twisting, and he's doing what happens with some people, and he's saying, okay, if, if God's going to protect you, then go all the way up to the uh, top of the temple corner, the southeastern eastern corner of the temple and throw yourself off and and see if God will protect you because this is what it says in the scripture. It's an Ill, illegitimate application of the passage. Now, the pinnacle of the temple, also known as Herod's portico, is described by uh, Josephus in his Antiquities, that this cloister deserves to be mentioned better than any other under the sun, for while the valley was very deep, in another place he says it was 450 feet from the top of the pinnacle to the ground. 
Uh, it's very deep. Its bottom could not be seen. If you look from above into the depth, this further vastly high elevation of the cloister stood upon that height insomuch that if anyone looked down from the top of the battlements or down both those heights, he would be giddy while his sight could not reach to such an immense depth. And here we have a picture of the southeastern corner of the Temple Mount. Uh, today it's not 450 feet. There's a highway that goes by or a road that goes by there just below it, and it would have been much deeper down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley uh, at the time of the first century. On the right, you have a depiction of this in the Jerusalem model of the temple that's outside of the uh, uh, Israel uh, Museum in Jerusalem, and this would this is the colonnade that Josephus described, and from the pinnacle, from the roof of the colonnade, then down to the base was 450 feet. Jesus again replied by quoting from Deuteronomy, saying, "You shall not tempt the Lord your God." What he is implying is that I'm not going to do what you say because if I did that, I would be testing God. And it is not the role of the creature to test God, and I will not do it. Again, he is showing that as the, as, as in, from his humanity, uh, as, as a man, as the God-man, as the Messiah servant, he is not going to violate scripture and put God to the test with something foolish. We have the third test in Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain. Now, we don't know what that mountain was. There are some traditions of different places, Mount Carmel, Mount of Olives, but this is probably simply a metaphoric or figurative description, someplace very high where he would have the vantage point. And so Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So he's, he is giving, taking Jesus to a high point, runs a video image past him, all the kings, all the history, all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory, and says, all these things will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now the temptation here is, is a temptation to Jesus to avoid the suffering, the adversity of his humanity and going to the cross rather than, and getting the kingdom first. Jesus never questions the devil as to whether he has the right to do this. In various passages, such as 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is referred to as the God of this age. In Ephesians 2, 2, he's described as the prince of the power of the air. In John 12, 31, John 14, 30, and John 16, 11, he is called the ruler of this world. So Jesus does not question Satan's right to offer the kingdoms, but the test is really are you going to get the crown, be the king without going through the cross? This is clear from the Old Testament from many passages such as Isaiah 53, uh, Psalm 22, numerous others that the Messiah was to come but he would suffer. He would be rejected. He would be despised among men. And the cross, the suffering must come before the glory of the crown. And what uh, Satan is offering, Jesus, is you can, you can get there without going through the suffering of the cross. You can get there without bearing the sins of mankind. You can get the crown before the cross. And yet Jesus is going to submit to the plan of the Father that he has to go through the, the, the cross. He has to go through suffering before he goes uh, and realizes the, 
the kingdom and that the kingdom is going to be given to him by God the Father, not from Satan. And so he's not going to yield to an illegitimate uh, source for the kingdom. Psalm 110.1 clearly proclaimed that the son of David would rule the kingdoms of the earth. And as the son of David, therefore, uh, Jesus is demonstrating that he will not accept the kingdoms from the hand of Satan. And so he concludes by saying uh, to Satan, away with you. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He's not going to bow to Satan. He's not going to accept anything from Satan's hand. He knows that the right thing has to be done the right way, and he will not accept the crown apart from the cross. And this is a quote from Deuteronomy 6.13, that we shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. Throughout this passage, what we learn is that we too undergo testing, but we're to have the same attitude of joy in the midst of suffering. Uh, James 1, 2 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its perfect result. The reason we go through trials and testing is to continue to teach us to be radically dependent upon uh, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God in everything that we do. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we're thankful for all your goodness to us. We're thankful for all that you've given us, and we're thankful for the trials. We're thankful for the tests. We're thankful for the hardships. We're thankful for the difficulties we face day in and day out. Sometimes we just think that you you take us beyond our ability, and yet the promise of Scripture is that we will not be tested beyond our ability because you are faithful And you will not allow us to be tested beyond our ability, for you will, with the test, make a way to escape, which is the word of God, that we may be able to endure the test, to hang in there, even though things are very difficult. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their eternal life, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would use this time to speak to them, to make it clear to them that We cannot have salvation. We cannot have certainty apart from you and that you have provided a perfect sacrifice for sin, just like the Old Testament picture of the lamb that was without spot or blemish at Passover, the lamb, the goat that was without spot or blemish that was sacrificed on the Day of Atonement, that you have provided the antitype for that, which is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, your servant, as Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 50 through 63, that this servant would take away the sins of the world and that all we need to do is trust in him. And at that instant, just like Abraham, we are given your righteousness, declared to be justified, and we have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied and learned this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.